Welcome to Kiki TV and welcome to our expert event. Today, I'm so happy to welcome Coach Zhang Ji. And Zhang Ji is working with the fascial integrity of the foot and the awakening the uh, posterior chain to an extraordinary athleticism, which he calls secrets of athleticism. And I certainly learned a great deal of secrets from you. Chong, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I have a long background in running, and then I was a professional dancer, lots of dance training, and decades of yoga training. And I discovered some time ago, as I became very hyper-flexible, I held poses for a long time, I didn't move very much. I was no longer running and jumping and doing things of that nature, but I actually lost this ability to just kind of move with quick ease. And I did not want to accept that it was this thing called aging. And I thought this has to do with muscles. It has to do with spring. Doing static flexibility has removed my spring somehow. And I want to solve this problem. And in my search, I came across your YouTube channel and I was just hooked and I really believed everything that you said and I started practicing. So tell me about your journey to discover what you're doing and exactly what it is that you're doing so all of our listeners can understand and anything more about your bio that I may have left out. Sure. So to the people that uh, don't know about me, I am the fascia fitness coach for the current UFC champion, Zhang Wei Li. Uh, we have went twice in a row. We're going to uh, have another fight probably in November against the challenger Rose. Uh, we're, we're very excited to uh, have this fight and have this opportunity. So I joined Zhang Wei Li's team uh, three months prior to her first title fight. And uh, at that time, uh, she uh, uh, had uh, foot problems. So, and because of the area of expertise I have on the foot and fascia, uh, I joined the team. And from there, uh, we, we really focused on increase the fascia, fascia, fascia fitness and also the fascia tensioning level in her body to make her more goose dominant makes make her movement more fascial driven and uh, makes her punch more accurate and powerful. And uh, my work is really based on the concept of, uh, of tensegrity of, uh, of Tai Chi uh, known as the silk reeling strength. So this is a very silk reeling. Yes. Silk reeling. So this is a uh, very, uh, very, Asian concept. Uh, I'm just gonna. Sh uh, I have. I actually have a, a one-hour presentation, but let me try to find that slide that uh, that people that don't understand about silk reeling can get a some type of um, understanding. Let me see if I can. Thank you. I can share my screen. Share screen. Perfect. Screen two. Uh, Share. Okay, now you do see my screen, correct? Yes. Okay. So on this screen here, this is the uh, microscopic view of fascia. 
as you can see, there's, uh, it, it looks like a web structure on the microscopic level. Now on this right-hand side, this is the, the web structure made from, uh, made by, by the silkworm. So there is amazing similarities between the two. And uh, you know, terminology in, in, in China, how the words are derived initially, they are derived based on the shape and function of that word. For example, mountain. The word mountain uh, in Chinese is called shan. So when you actually write the character of the mountain, you actually look like a mountain. It has up and downs. So it's, it's a triangle shape, has a base. So a lot of the uh, descriptions that the uh, Tai Chi text had written, I believe is describing the strength of fascia. But there are many different uh, interpretations prior to my work. And they were talking about basically uh, movements that uh, represent this type of strength. But my work is really to dive into fascia because my work, uh, I want to be able to measure it using Western uh, scientific equipment to understand what it really does. So we have a concept, say, in our yoga world or our wellness athletics world that fascia sheathes the muscle, it's sticky, it gets tight, and we want to make it loosen up. But I think what you're talking about with fascia is a very different understanding. Correct. So, I think our understanding is limited. We almost see tight fascia as an enemy. You're talking about fascia where a fascia intelligence uh, or function brings superior ability and optimal movement and expression. Right, I think uh, the current mainstream understanding of the fascia is still at a very rudimentary level. Uh, when you're talking about uh, when you're talking about the, uh, the, uh, the fascia being very tight, uh, that is really a segmented view, a uh, reductionist view of that specific parts. Yes, there, there could be a sticky uh, fascia tissue there, but the, the, uh, the work that we're doing is really to make the body more functional through the entire entirety of the fascia network in the body. So for those people who are very new to fascia, must understand that fascia is, is, the, the, is actually the structure that holds us together. It's everywhere in the body. There is no place in your body that do not have fascia. So it's sort of like the, uh, if you, those people, those people that, uh, uh, study astrophysics, they understand, okay, so there's a thing called dark matter, which is like 80% of the universe I couldn't see. Now, fascia is sort of like that. It's the, it's the jowling force that integrates everything in your body. It is in your muscle. It is outside your muscle. It's in your deeper compartment of your muscle. And so far through that section, they have identified three layers of fascia. And uh, um, and if you have a, 
a cross section of your leg, for example, all your muscles in your leg are compartmentalized by fascia. So in order for you to use the entirety of your leg, the fascia that separates between layer of fascia, fa uh, muscle have to work properly. And uh, this is where my work challenges the traditional, under, traditional theory of the muscle contraction called the sliding filament theory, which I often talk about to my, to my students and uh, to the people that are interested in my work is that uh, the sliding filament theory is incomplete because they only simply describe the relationship between muscle fiber to muscle fiber. While we understand now from the section that muscle must interact with fascia in order to interact with inner or deeper layer of muscle group. So how does this begin or how is the foot a very important part of this, the use of the foot? So the, the use of the, the foot, so how do you train the fascia holistically? That's, yes. that's really the question. That's really the question, yes. That's John. a really question. So, so fascia, yes, we have it, everyone have it. Uh, how, do we, how do we influence the fascia tissue in a way that's meaningful? Um, this is where Tai Chi comes from because without, without the hints that the martial art masters have provided over thousands of years, I, I wouldn't have integrated everything or I wouldn't have connected dots. Uh, obviously, I, I put in tons of work, tried to reverse engineer what, what the modern elite athletes have in their feet, but from the Asian text, there is a very foundational uh, training cue for Tai Chi uh, masters, which is to grip the foot. To grip the foot. That is a very generic explanation for developing fascia strength. Now, how do you exactly grip the foot and how do you kick off this holistic uh, chain reaction in your body? That is where I come in. This is where my work comes in to break down the exact steps on how you can put tension in your foot that causes the holistic metamorphosis neurologically in your body. Because fascia is very closely uh, integrated with uh, nerves and your nervous system. There is a lot of these, uh, for example, people develop uh, neuromas in their foot. Uh, chronic knee pains, uh, chronic ankle sprays, uh, chronic back. Yes, a lot of these uh, patho pathological problems, in my view, after all these years, is really because of the, the fascia. The, it's the con fascia connection from the foot to the glutes. And I have seen uh, a lot of uh, success in training the foot making the connection better from the foot to the glutes that basically cures. I'm not talking about just address the symptoms, but cures the underlying condition of, of chronic uh, joint pains. Well, that was certainly my situation. I did have chronic joint pain and hip inflammation, and I was able to do a lot of, say, beautiful yoga poses and 
to ride a bike and everything. But I realized actually from looking at your work that I couldn't do that introductory jumping exercise and I could not. And I'm, you know, it's unbelievable to me now. I couldn't hop on one foot, maybe just once or twice. And where I had sustained a fall, a hip injury, um, I couldn't jump at all. And really through gripping, using information from you and training from you that you so generously shared in your YouTube and in your Facebook group, and then looking at some other barefoot walking, barefoot running, I became a barefoot walker in New York City wearing moccasins, <laughs> you know, handmade leather moccasins on the concrete streets of New York. And I completely healed this and I would say revitalized or brought a youthful, very youthful uh, movement qualities to my climbing steps and walking and running and jumping. So um, I know you've made this point, but I just want to share and reiterate when we enclose the foot in a shoe, we lose all of that opportunity for neurological and fascial proprioception. And it's also going to change our gait and force a heel strike. And this can certainly be culpable in the terrible deterioration of uh, mobility and movement health that we see throughout, you know, all around us. Right. Could so I just want, about, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just want to add to that because uh, there is, uh, I think, a lot of misconception about the shoe, for example, and how the, uh, how the human body adapts to it. Uh, this is, this is what, what, uh, what really fascinates me and it really surprised me uh, when I was doing the research and when I was actually doing all these experiments and uh, measuring myself and uh, but having successfully gone through the neurological metamorphosis and reached uh, what I call level four, meaning my abs and glutes are fully connected, my feet and my glutes are fully connected, I can use either body parts to influence the other body parts and making it engage, uh, which can be measured by EMG, uh, is that the, the elite athlete that we, we have in, in today's society, they have a different adaptation path to the shoe than the regular folks. Regular folks, when they wear the shoe because their foot neurologically adapts to the comfort of the shoe, so they start to relax since a young age. For example, when you start to go from year six to year 13 years old, this, this is a very critical developmental stages of your, of your fascia, of your neurological system. Now, this degeneration happens slowly and happens silently without people's awareness because you're simply adapting to the the condition that uh, the environment provided to you. Uh, but the elite athletes, they have mainly identified two specific um, developmental differences than regular people is that first, during the age six to 13, they are usually playing sports barefoot. They spend 
more time playing sports barefoot and uh, interacting with the natural environment. And at the same time, they are applying fascial tension in the hyper, what I call the hyperarch mechanism. They are triggering the catalyst for the for this neurological uh, metamorphosis in their body, and it only takes a few years for them to develop this holistic uh, fascia-driven neurological pattern in their body. Now, the the people that still wear the shoe, for example, even though they don't wear uh, they don't go barefoot, there's still a very slight chance that they could become elite athlete, and that is they are putting a lot of tension in their feet while the feet is inside the shoe. So basically they're not really adapting the shoe, but they are, their neurological system is so strong that when they move around, they still apply a lot of tension. So these two uh, different ways of developing the body will actually eventually meet up together. And then, and then they will both be the same level of elite, uh, on the elite level of athleticism. But if you actually examine their feet, you can notice the same signs of fascia ten tensioning. But it's very interesting to see that this type of occurrence happening. So it's not, uh, I, I, I don't want to, because I know so much, I don't want to yes. mislead. Simplify uh, it, I understand. Yeah, yeah I don't want to mislead the, the, the audience in thinking, okay, so I wear the shoe, uh, then my foot is just going to degenerate automatically. Yeah. There is still a chance that when you wear the shoe, you apply fascial tensioning, which is a subconscious, it's a, it's a very subconscious uh, behavior. It's like breathing. So for example, if I breathe uh, 20 times, if I breathe 10 times slower than, than you, there is no way for you to tell me that I'm breathing 10 times slower because you don't know how many times you breathe and I don't know how many times I breathe. So it's very hard to even exchange this, this, this data. But, but it's very similar to the amount of fascial tension you put in your foot. Now, there are people who put a lot of tension in their foot naturally, and there are people who just, majority of the people, they don't put, put too much tension in their foot because there is comfort that the shoe provides. Right. But this information, it's very hard to communicate because nobody knows what's going on in, in the other person's body. Uh, but this fascial um, tension, yeah. Do you want to continue to share this slide? Because I'd also like people to see you and your expressiveness as well. We can go back to sharing slides. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, what, what, which slides do you want to see? I would like to see some of the, either just you or I would like to see some of the slides around the foot. And just now, uh, just to respond to what you're saying or just to highlight a little bit for our listeners. So you're talking about someone who develops this incredible fascial intelligence and knowledge and they're acting on it. They're playing sport barefoot in the early part of their life in these really essential years. So that when they put the shoe on, they still have that connection and intelligence uh, through these nerves and through the fascia and they perform magnificently. But what we do see, and I know you've highlighted this when you show clips of great athletes, uh, particularly the ones that I've watched in the baseball arena, very often say someone, a magnificent athlete like LeBron James, he's teased a little bit about how he walks or runs. But what you see 
yeah, let's keep this for a moment. But what you see, uh, what you're witnessing through your eye and research, when you see LeBron and that heel doesn't touch down, uh, that that's actually, he's exhibiting um, that magnificent um, silk reeling, this experience of the fascia. So even in the shoe, his foot is maintaining this position. And is this LeBron James's foot? Yeah, this is a this is a uh, a picture of LeBron James' foot in the public domain. Uh, basically, if you ask a mainstream podiatrist, by mainstream podiatrist's definition, when they see the toes curl like this, they will label it as uh, hammer toe. Now, hammer toe is a pathological condition that causes pain in the uh, ball of the foot. But this does not happen to LeBron James. And he's highly mobile and he's highly athletic. So this is where I had that conversation with Dr. Emily Splitchell, who's also from New York and who's also very interested in my work. Uh, we discussed upon this, uh, this categorization and uh, we both agreed that uh, the way that we need to look at the pathological condition of the hammer toe need to be re-examined. Because uh, basically through my research and through my work, the, the students that I worked with after a, a, uh, a good amount of time putting the foot under fascial tension, the specific signs of fascial tensioning will show, which means your toes will start to curl and the flexor tendons will become visible, the anterior tendon will be visible and so on and so forth. So this, particular sign is also a sign of, of fascia tensioning. I experienced this myself. When I was a runner, I ran the 800 through high school at a, at a pretty good competitive level. And then I ran 10K and cross country and some 10 mile, 10 miler competitions, et cetera. And my feet, my toes looked like that. But I felt very self-conscious about them. I was 16, 17, 18 years old. I was going into dance classes and I thought, oh, my feet are so big. I had such big feet. At that time in the 80s, I was like, my feet are bigger than everyone else's. They're so ugly. And I had calluses along the top of my toes where they bumped up against the shoe. And I wanted Correct. to get rid of it. I wanted what I perceived to be beautiful you know, feet. And then through yoga, we're doing this widening. And um, now from doing your work, my feet do this. My toes um, definitely have that in it. And I also have that tendon coming up the front of the, the uh, shin now. The anterior tibial tendon, yes. Yes. Yes, so, so yeah, so the... Uh, yeah, it's, it's not a, I guess, a popular thing if you don't understand it. Uh, because uh, I think the mainstream, uh, the, the norm is to have uh, straight holes and uh, no, no calluses on the top of the, of, the, of the toes and whatnot. But when you realize what this mechanism can do to your body over a period of time, you would not want to forfeit. You, you, would not, you would not want to ignore it. That's exactly what I want to hear you say. 
because a lot of people, they haven't lost it yet. So they don't ignore it. Don't lose this or get back to this as soon as you can. So Kadur Aziani, tell us who he is. He's this amazing jumper. Yes. So Kadur Aziani is uh, one of my ambassadors for hyperfragile training. He actually grew up in the uh, suburbs of France. And he, he actually never wear a pair of shoe because of the uh, social economic condition that he was in. Uh, but he developed his athleticism very, very quickly at a young age. So at age of, age of 12 and 13, he was already excelling in any type of sports. For example, sprinting, running, uh, basketball. And at that time, he wasn't really into basketball. But during one of the games that he was playing with his friends, he easily, just easily dunked the basketball when he was still a teenager. And he's and quite slim. He's not... Very slim. Very in slim. View, in the American view, uh, you know, these, you know, kind of fitness athletic training would look at this guy and be like, he doesn't look like an athlete. Maybe a marathon runner, but... Um, right. So it's not related to muscle, it's related to this fascial. Fascial. Yes. It's a, it's a fascia and it's a neurological thing. And uh, what is amazing about him is that he was the, uh, uh, the pioneer for dunk shows. So prior to him and Tell his us team. Tell what dunk shows are because some sure. of our listeners may know this. I didn't know what they were uh, a few years ago when I was introduced to your work and introduced to him. So tell us what that is. They're pretty right. amazing. So, so the dunk shows basically is a group of guys that, uh, that are all uh, very good at uh, dunking the basketball and leaping high. Uh, they will, you know, perform just like uh, a basketball uh, regular basketball game, but instead of playing the actual game, they will be doing fantastic uh, aerial display of their athleticism. So various ways of dunking, creative way of dunking, doing some of the long uh, jumping from the free throw line of the basket court. And uh, I mean, doing reverse dunks, 360 dunks, under the leg dunks, and basically try to do things that you did not uh, imagine. Um, so he was a pioneer of that. When we saw, you know, those first, for the audience at large, many years ago, when we saw Michael Jordan running, right, in the, seeming to run in the air and gain height, like he was exactly. like Spider-Man running in the air. This is what we see exhibited with these athletes and what they're, uh, marveling their audience with in the dunk shows is exactly really fine gravity. And how is that happening? Can you tell us how Michael Jordan and other athletes that are able to do this, what is going on in the fascial view? Yeah. So this is, this is where it gets really interesting. And this, this will probably uh, have a lot of, uh, raises a lot of debates among the sport performance world. But I, I have the, I have the, a lot of proof to back it up. So what is happening is that really uh, muscle contraction by itself plays a very little role in production of effortless delivery power. Muscle itself, okay. 
the fact that most elite athletes are able to do it while they're in teenage years, that tells you it's not muscle because mm. muscle actually matures for adult, uh, uh, adult male after 20s, between 20 and 30. That's when the muscles start to mature. Now, elite athletes, they start dunking and display this level of athleticism. For example, LeBron James at age of 15 and 16. Well, their muscle is not fully developed. But what is powering them is actually the neurological connection structured by fascia. And the reason that elite athletes share this common fascia tensioning science in the foot on various degree will separate them from the top of their foot chain or to the you know, uh, lower of their Here. foot chain. Mm -hmm. So, so there, there, there's a degree to this. It's not just black and white, that's it. It's not one or zero. It's more like a spectrum of fascia fit, uh, a level of fascia fitness, a spectrum of uh, different level of neurological connection. The more neurologically connected you are, the more fascia driven, the more fascia connection you have, you're going to be more athletic and less prone to injury. Why? Because your body has to work holistically not only to deliver force, but to absorb the amount of force you're putting into the ground. So this is something that's, uh, that's never talked about in the Western muscle-based training, because muscle-based training, you're for focusing on giving force, but very little on absorbing force. Now, the only exercise that I see absorbing the force is is really done in the, in the incorrect way because I see a lot of people when they practice landing, they're practicing landing with a deep knee squat. Like the plyo. Yeah, even some of the plyo, plyo, uh, plyometric exercises, they're doing it with either too much dorsiflexion. Even if you go to uh, uh, like uh, one of the recognized uh, sports uh, uh, training facilities in California, the P3, uh, the, the Performance uh, Institute, uh, I think their approach is still telling the athlete to dorsiflex when they do the plyometric exercise. But we have uh, numerous uh, footages and also barefoot footages of athletes who are on a higher level of fascia connection, uh, fascia fitness level. When they do the plyos, they never dorsiflex. Their foot is in stiff, uh, it's, it's locked together and it's very stiff. There's the, the, an appearance of a right angle between the front of the shin and the foot, that uh, anterior, yes. 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 Gonna, can you just uh, come off of screen share so we can see that, um, that model that you're holding? Thank you. Okay, here we go. So this is what I'm talking about. So dorsiflexion, a forced dorsiflexion is when you are trying to land on the ground, you're your shin and your foot almost get together. This angle will decrease. And this is what uh, traditionally taught as a dorsiflexion. So they will ask the athlete to purposely raise their foot a little bit and to change the angle of their shin and then land in a deep squat position and then execute the jump. But elite athletes are doing something completely different. It looks like this angle drops like this. But because of their fascial connection, locking the ankle together, this is a temporary event, meaning you see a temporary, temporary deformation 
of the compression cons, compressive force that makes their uh, makes their ankle looks like they're dorsiflexing, but they are not doing that. They are in their mind they're locking their ankle up, and this because of the fascia, uh, the elasticity of the fascia, it will recoil, it will recoil back and create this upstream uh, energy to the glutes. But what, what uh, some of the mainstream uh, training facility they're teaching athletes to do is actually when they're upon landing, they're telling athletes to raise their foot, to create that looks like, the, the, to create the look, but functionality wise is very different. We see this in the yoga classroom where someone started teaching, okay, when the feet are on the ground, just flex the toes off the ground or flex and widen the toes. And so the feet are not serving any kind of intelligent neurological support going up. Another challenge that I found to the springiness of movement, I and many yoga students, I traveled to India for many years. And when I was first going to India in the mid 90s, all the toilets were squat toilets. And if you're not raised in a culture with squat toilets, it's very difficult to learn to get on a squat toilet. So there was a lot of need, like, need to actually get that deep dorsiflexion to be able to be comfortable um, on the toilet or in that you know, daily activity. And um, certainly that, that became kind of is a desirable for yoga students or even a lot of the animal movement uh, fitness that we have going around now to be able to drop into that squat but um then there is that extreme dorsiflexion and i for me a loss of this kind of springing and activity and fascial intelligence right i mean there is a uh, very funny thing uh that's going on which i i, I call it it's it, it's completely oxymoron in my opinion because uh the 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 mainstream training is it's it's uh, in love with squat so much that they will criticize the squat form of elite athletes because elite athletes the ankle they're they're so locked up through fascial tension it does not dorsiflex in the in the sense that regular person do and I have multiple uh, photo evidence of that of LeBron James squat uh, James Harden squat these are like million dollar athletes, uh, best of the best. When they squat, they do not squat in the way that traditional people do. Um, but the, the, the key thing here, I think what, what they got it wrong is they, they want to produce, they want to train the body to produce power by squatting low to recruit, recruit glutes. But because of the advancement in fascial research, it's clear that we don't need to have a large, like very deep squat positions to recruit the amount of glutes that we, we really need. The, the amount of recruitment that really, really happens through fascial tension. This is where the foot and the glutes link together. This connection, it actually provides, you know, how many uh, muscle my fiber you can recruit during your movement, how, how much, uh, glutes you can use in a particular movement. That is the key. 
not how deep you can go. So I, I think right now, because of the advancement in, uh, in uh, fascia research, for example, in Germany, there's a fascia research Congress. Uh, in Japan, people are doing, spend a lot of money on, on fascia research. Uh, these are two leading countries in fascia research. Uh, in America, I think uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Mike Myers uh, with uh, Autonomy Trains, um, uh, Emily, uh, Dr. Emily uh, Stitchell, who I worked with, uh, also talked through podcasts. They are all very interesting in fascia, but in, in different degrees. Yes, I, I did some of the training with the anatomy trains mm-hmm. coming through that. And actually there's, well, at the time that I did it, maybe let's say five or six years ago, the belief was that it's very natural. It's our natural state to heal strike. And so a lot of the idea of what's optimal around that system, um, from my experience, it's that's not the whole story. Uh, we yes. may develop heel striking, but if we look at, the, at a baby's feet and how as infants or toddlers begin to walk, it's all with the toe curling and all the gripping and even you know being on the toe and the ball of the foot. And then we can look at the elite runners from Kenya and who run barefoot and great distances barefoot and may not wear shoes uh, due to you know, economic conditions. They may not wear shoes until they're teenagers. And we see, we don't see a heel strike. We see this you know, midfoot or forefoot striking. Exactly. And, and I think uh, there was a Harvard professor went to Africa to study. Yes, Goldman. I think it's Goldman or um, yes. Uh, Dan, I want to say Daniel Goldman, but that might not be it. Lieberman, yeah. Lieberman. Lieberman, thank you. Yeah. So I think what he found out was uh, really interesting, but also it, it ties to my research as well, because he actually asked uh, uh, a young teenager, young boy to run barefoot and he would measure his uh, ground contact. And also he asked him to put on a pair of shoe. And immediately when, when the person starts to wear the shoe, that little boy starts to pale strike. This is where the developmental stages and this is where the neurological changes matters. Because if, you, if a person haven't developed a high level of fascia fitness, they are very easily influenced by external factors. However, when you are fully developed, went through the, all the four stages of neurological metamorphosis, when you put on the shoe, you are not going to heel strike either because it's a whole body movement now. So this is where it's very interesting. Like, like people, that study, it's, for me, it's really a, it's like studying a, uh, a, life, a life cycle of a worm becoming a butterfly. So it actually zoomed in on the initial stages of, of, the, of the metamorphosis of that worm. But if you want to truly understand the whole cycle, you have to let this worm develop into a butterfly. You have to study the full cycle. You cannot just study one part of their life cycle. Then you will get a segmented understanding of that cycle. So, but it's, it's really fascinating because, because when the neurological system starts to change, and wired to be more posterior or goose dominant, this is what Western world define such gait is, whether you have the shoe or don't have the shoe, there's no problem. And just recently, uh, 
Caprito uh, win the Diamond League running without a Nike shoe. Because one, sh- one of his shoes fell during the race. And he was way behind also. And he was able to not only catch up and beat the person at the last very second of the race. So it, have it, to look it, for that. That sounds yeah. wonderful. Yeah, it's incredible. And then you can see all the signs which I, I talk about in the foot. You see the anterior tibial tendons. You see the flexor tendons. And he's not heel striking. Everything's on the ball of the foot. And at the last second, he was just building up momentum. And this is what I talk about. Like when you, when you start to train using a stiff ankle, when you run with the hyperbaric maximum engage, you will feel a lot of momentum building up when you run versus every step you're using a, a group of muscle, for example, your quad. So you're laboring every single step versus you're, you're losing. Yes. Because you're losing you're mu- energy. You're losing, um, you're losing whatever you're getting muscle fatigue. You're getting lactic acid buildup. You're losing power. Yes. The idea that the longer I run, the more power I lose. And yet to watch professional athletes, and to see them gain power, especially these games that go into overtime. And it almost seems like basketball always goes into some kind of tiebreaker overtime. And that there's still this access and even that kind of, I don't know if they call it in basketball, but that Hail Mary moment where there's just a split second on the clock and they haven't lost. There's actually still this magical ability to do something unimaginable. Uh, so they're gaining, gaining, gaining this strength. Yes, this is actually a, a very important uh, property of fascia called piezoelectric property of the fascia. What that means is that when your fascia deforms, when it's fully functional, of course, when it deforms, it actually generates free energy. So and, tell us what you mean by deform. You talk about it morphing like how we would say maybe that foot of LeBron James is. It's morphed. It's morphed. So, um, but it's morphed. It appears to be deformed and to be suboptimal, but actually it morphed to this more than optimal state. Yes. So that's a, a very, it, it, it's basically a, a shift in, in understanding a lot of conditions and, uh, uh, you were going to explain this electrical thing. Right, the piezoelectric yeah, effect. You. So the piezoelectric effect is, is actually, it's everywhere in nature. It's not just in our body. It's, uh, for example, if you put a piece of iron under a, uh, uh, a compactor, the, 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 as the pressure increases, you can put a, uh, a wire next to the metal, and you can actually measure electricity coming out of it. So this is something that happens in nature. It's a very natural uh, effect of things. So this piezoelectric effect actually happens to our human body. Not only to, it's, it's, it's a, one of the three major components of fascia. Uh, the other one is also very important that explains why people have deformed feet or more feet is called a viscoelasticity. Let me, let me first uh, explain what uh, uh, piezoelectric effect is. So basically when the tissue itself, when the fascia tissue itself, when it starts to being overstretched, uh, pulled out of its 
regular position. In a highly functional state, this generates free energy for you. So that means for every step that you take, for every high knee you raise up, there is a uh, energy being returned to your body. So there is a force that you're actually making your foot go into the ground harder. And this is how elite athletes are able to accelerate. For example, um, uh, Usain Bolt, in the last 100 meters of the race, he's able to accelerate much faster. I've watched a lot of these video breakdowns of Usain Bolt. It's phenomenal. Yes. And so this is all due to this, this, this fascia, fascia ability. Right. Also, what is very interesting in my students that I've seen is that uh, the students, for example, if you go, go through a one hour of basketball practice or two hours back uh, of practice, if someone is uh, uh, muscle driven or muscle dominant, at the end of the practice, that person will be dead tired. Very, a lot of muscle fatigue. Uh, could be segmented areas, could be lower back, quad, and, and shoulders, you know. But for a student who is on a level of higher fascia uh, fitness, at the end of that two-hour practice, they gain more energy than at the beginning. So at the end of that two-hour practice, they are jumping to the highest, almost to the point of dunking the basketball which is incredible because what that means is that during the whole two hours of practice, they are gaining more neurological and more of this free energy coming from fascia. And at the end of the practice, they are actually moving more effortless than at the beginning of the practice. It's interesting. This is just a little side note, but it would ex also explain why phenomenal pro athletes some of them have, you know, very boisterous nightlifes where you see yeah. these athletes, they've just won these major games, they've exerted so much, yet they go out and dance and party and possibly use drugs and alcohol. And it's because they have so much energy, it just shoots them out to the nightclub. Um, they're yes. not depleted. There's not an idea like, hey man, I have to go home and recover. I have another, I practice in the morning, I have another game in two days. We can actually witness, I mean, only from, I don't know, the gossip columns or something, that these phenomenal athletes can have these phenomenal <laughs> post-game uh, activity and energy, which is incomprehensible to an ordinary mover <laughs> or a weekend athlete. Um, so that there's just a ton of gathered energy there to carry them forward. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, this, uh, this, this phenomena, it's, it's, it's really fascinating and also it's, it's really wonderful. So imagine a, a regular person, right? So he started running, for example, every day two miles or one mile. He started running at the beginning. And, you know, it's okay. But as they start to warm up their neurological system and then their fascia system start to come online and then go into higher state, 
they are running better at the latter half of the of the one mile than before. So when they after they're running one mile, they feel ener energized for the day. So and also you're running in a way that you're not huffing and puffing. You're recycling energy every single step. You're bouncing yourself forward versus every step is laboring. So you go throughout your day after every every uh every day you're getting better neurologically and this is how you know i think could change a lot of people's life because first they they go through i think right now they're still stuck in that consciousness level where they think okay i gotta join a membership i gotta lift weights in order to keep myself in shape but meanwhile there's something hiding really inside their foot that could dramatically change their lives if they are spending maybe a quarter of their time in a gym to this, to this specific knowledge, to this conscious awareness of your foot. And I, I think that's, that's where the game changer uh, comes from. It's, it's really how people want to live their lives. Well, I definitely experienced it through doing your introductory exercises and really regularly, and I still do them. And, um, I do know that um, if a yoga student is chasing flexibility and hyper flexibility and they get into a hyper mobility place, they are extremely fatigued at the end of their yoga session. And very often the newcomer yoga student, the kind of stiff person, they, th there's a starting point there where they gain energy and they leave with a great deal of energy because they're awakening they still have some kind of stiffness they're awakening some neurological um, intelligence whereas the very flexible hyper flexible hyper mobile um, almost contortionist they're intentionally overriding the the kind of joint intelligence or the neurological intelligence um, there, it's almost like intentionally muffling or muting it to get that extreme flexibility. And I know for a fact that that is not recommended and incredibly dangerous. And living in New York City and growing up with dance, it's like you can see the, the older ballerinas, the great ballerinas, if they're teaching when they're 60 and 70 years old, they can't walk. Their, like, their body doesn't follow any kind of, you know, uh, developmental momentum uh, that children have. So, right. I, I like to make a comment on that because uh, stretching is uh, a, a a very important uh, foundation for not only yoga but for martial arts as well, uh, especially uh, Chinese martial arts, and. Uh, by understanding fascia and uh, how it really works actually uh, will change a lot of people's uh, old standing of, uh, of stretching. Because uh, uh, just recently, because of the study that uh, was done on fascia, uh, we understand fascia has a lot of uh, 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 stretch receptors. So it's very responsive, very responsive to stretching. Um, fascia itself has this property of the viscoelasticity, meaning that it deforms over time, meaning it will, it will get influenced by tension over time. Uh, 
It's so, like a sculpture. It's yeah, shaking. it's uh, yes, it's like a, it's more like a plastic. So like if you have a plastic bottle, you can press the plastic bottle quickly. It will it will go in and it will come up. But if you press the uh, plastic bottle a little bit longer over a period of time, the bottle deforms. So this plasticity is has the same effect to our fascia system and has the same effect to our neurological system. And this is why people are either quad dominant or glutes dominant, because the body has to choose the most dominant way of performing a task. So this and, adaptive, this yes. kind of adaptive property of uh, an animal, uh, a human, speaking of humans, we have to choose one or the other. But what you're seeing in your research and work and in your training is that that glutes dominant is a superior jumping, running, kicking uh, athlete or boxing athlete. Right. The, the, the glutes dominant is it's a, it's basically also can be defined as fascial driven because glutes is 70% fascia content. Okay. So, so previously, uh, what the mainstream scientists did when they do that section is they threw out every single tissue that is not muscle. Hmm. So they threw out 70% of the glutes because they are, they think it's junk. That's how it used to be, believe it or not. They want to study the underlying structure of the muscle. So anything that's on top of it inside, that's yellowish, that's uh, whitish, that's dry. They think it's not important. They take hmm. it out. They threw it out. But now they understand. Now Germany, Japan, they start to understand, wow, this thing really plays a critical role, role not, a, not, not only in force production, but also roles in your health, in your immune system, in your, your, in your movement. And they begin to uh, have experiment to, to connect all the dots together. Um, the, I think the, the most important thing about stretching is that there is a thing. Uh, there is there is a thing of overstretching. If you are stretching too much, your fascial uh, tissue will stretch to, of course, to a, to out of their original state to adapt to what you are trying to make it to to function. Right, whatever stress you're throwing at it, it will try to adapt, because that's how our body is. Whatever environment it's in, it try to adapt to that environment. Whatever stress we give it, it try to adapt. But if you are overstretching it, what will happen is that it loses the critical ability of elasticity. So it could not recoil the way that it used to recoil. And now, it, now you move around, you imagine you have a full suit of web that is overstretched, meaning loose instead of tight. Now it's more you have to rely on your muscle. Now you don't, I don't have, have that. to imagine it. <laughs> <laughs> I was living it. But um, the great news is, is that you, you know, and I'm so grateful to you, your research and your training, and now this ongoing research, um, that it can be recovered, that we can actually recover and reeducate our fascia through movement and what I experienced with your work through the foot. So yeah, but. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Yes. So by consciously 
doing these fascia tensioning exercises and activating the hyperarch mechanism. It, the, let me go back to the word hyperarch mechanism. This Please is really... Do. Please do. This is really a, a new mechanism. I, it's not described in any Western literature and it's not described in Tai Chi either. The reason I have to coin this mechanism is because without this, without defining this key mechanism, you won't be able to kick off this metamorphosis. If you don't have the foundation of a, a defined definition of a mechanism, there is no way for you to define everything else. So you have to start there. I mean, it's people in the West understand the windlass mechanism where you raise the toe and there is a, a change in your longitudinal arc. That, that is defined, right? And also in that windlass mechanism, it's also defined when the windlass mechanism is it's, it's happening, the ankle will actually lock up. Whereas the hyperarc mechanism, you do not need to raise your toe. Simply concentrating on your arc or hyperarc, like in hyperspace, which you cannot see or exist, but it actually has a function. By concentrating in your hyperarc, you can activate a mechanism similar to windlass, also lock up the ankle, but this has a tremendous effect to your glutes. And also, this is very similar. Like, if you uh, watch my interview with Dr. Emily Spitzel, in the Western term, uh, the short foot. Although the definition and the requirements are different, but it has similarities for sure. So, so basically, what I see is that we have a Western description of something, and we have Eastern description of something. But the Eastern description of something is really a holistic view, whereas the Western uh, description of something is in the reductionist view, basically focused on one thing, but forgot what this thing can do holistically or in the, under the right conditions. So I think this is where East and West meet together. So this is really my work to try to take what's, what's in the past of the West, I mean East, and then using Western scientific method to measure it and then integrate them together to create this training system so that not only you're benefiting from it, you also have a scientific understanding of what's going on in your body. And so now explain to us if we wanted to begin to practice and experience what you're sharing, what your research is and what your um, coaching skill set is, where do we begin or even how can we start to access that? Sure. With so the in toes, the with the feet, with the arch. Right. So, so your foot, your foot is structured in a way. Uh, the first thing that w w what I want to do with anybody is to measure what your current condition is in terms of fascia, how connected your body is. So there are seven assessment questions. The first one is very easy. Everybody can do is basically simply standing straight and then just raise their heel. Raise their heel straight up and keeping their torso, torso erect, raising their heel up. Now, if the majority of the people, they lack connection from the foot to the glutes. So when this, this uh, specific uh, pattern of uh, motor control happens, they will say, okay, I feel um, now 
not stable. I, I feel a little wobbly. And also when my heel is too high, I feel uh, instability in my ankle area. I feel my calf. I feel some of my knee. I feel my quad muscle is, is being taxed. But this very simple drill or assessment, if you apply it to a, for example, a LeBron James type of athlete, they will tell you that all they feel is their glutes and they're incredibly stable when they are heel off the ground, incredibly stable. And this can be scientifically measured by EMG to the glutes. You can see the activation right away. So when they lift their heel is not a segmented movement of the calf. When they lift their heel is a holistic movement that is powered by the glutes through the fascia, link all the way to the, to the, to the foot. So that is very different. So the first thing that anybody can check to see, oh, where am I in terms of fascia connection is to do this very simple assessment to see if they feel in their quad, in their calf, or do they feel something in their hamstring or glutes and how stable they are. This is a very simple test. And from there, we want to look at the, the, the foot itself to see if the anterior tibian tendon is is prominent or is this is this tendon going in and out especially um, when you try to uh, lower yourself try to reach for something on the floor now check your anterior tibial tendon to see if it's pausing meaning it appears it disappears it appears and disappears when that happens your foot structure actually is changing on a microscopic mm. level it's not mm. stable but very interestingly, if you ask uh, a baby or a toddler when they're very young, right? You ask them to reach down and then you put your hand on their anterior tibial tendon. You can feel that tendon being activated right away. And also their foot, if you put a piece of paper on underneath their foot and ask them to grip the paper, they, you, you will not see the structure of their foot change much. There is no change. Their foot is very stiff. That means they have naturally have the expression of this mechanism. Whereas if you ask an adult who has chronic knee pains, chronic uh, issue with their uh, ankle or foot or lower back, whatever, you ask them to put a piece of paper underneath. So let me grab a piece of paper and ask them to step on this piece of paper and now try to grip grip using their arc, try to grip this uh, piece of paper down low, right? What will happen is that there is a tremendous change in their foot structure. So what that tells you is how, how did it happen is, is that over their developmental stages, they did not gain, but they lost the stability in their foot, in their structure. But this is something that I think mainstream do not talk about or understand. I, I agree. I agree. I think that's really your, um, you know, illuminated discovery. Do you have an image there to show us that really pronounced um, anterior tendon? tendon. Sure. Uh, I have, uh, let me see. I have a... Let me share my screen here. 
share screen. Let me back to that slides I have with Ziani. This is the tendon I'm talking about right in the front. And I also have multiple, numerous images on my Instagram uh, with... I will share all that information um, with everyone below this video when it's posted. With the, uh, not just one sport, but multiple different sport. In tennis, we have Rafael Nadal. In uh, soccer, we have uh, Ronaldinho. In uh, uh, basketball, we have LeBron James, uh, James Harden. And then in women's sport, for example, we have long jumpers, Australia champion level long jumpers, and champion level elite sprinters. You will see the prominence of their anterior tibial tendon. So the people that are basically excelling in uh, track and field, they all display this type of fascial tension in their foot. What that means is that their body operates in a completely 180 degree way than regular people. They're fascial driven, even though they're very lean, like very, very lean and toned. They don't have gigantic muscle masses. You don't see that at all, but they're able to deliver a tremendous amount of power and in an effortless manner. Thank you. Okay, so that's number two in uh, working with that paper and seeing uh, that tendon coming forward. And what else, what else can we look at? Sure, then there is a very critical exercise I, I recommend everyone to do as a beginner is the elevated tall curls. Because over time, people develop so, so much um, uh, neurological, it's really because your, your foot is dormant in the shoe. People start to lose the functionality of all their toes. You see there are joints in the toes. The joints in the toes, the ability to grip using the toes, it actually has a function of creating tension. Just like your hand, if you are gripping your hand fingers, you're gripping, you're clawing your fingers, you create tension. But the way that uh, the modern way sh the shoe is designed is to protect the foot to, to even inter uh, interact with the, the ground, natural ground stimulus. So the foot doesn't ever learn how to use the toe properly. So what I recommend to a lot of beginners is in the beginning, you have to do the elevated toe curls, meaning your heel has to be raised in the ground and then you put a towel underneath and then your toes are basically doing this. You're trying, to, you're trying to retract them towards the ball of the foot, thereby making the ball of the foot more prominent, this area more prominent. A lot of people don't understand the concept of ball of foot. I totally understand that as a beginner. Why? Because when, when you lie dormant with your foot in the shoe, the shoe is not flat. So I see a lot of people when they wear the shoe, their toes are touching, they create a hollowness of the ball of the foot. So the ball of the foot actually never touch the ground. Hmm. And they don't understand that in order for them to uh, apply energy and absorbing energy, they have to develop a optimal contact point. And this is where my 
work is also different from mainstream because mainstream actually teaches a tripod system. Right. A tripod system of, of, uh, of force, meaning a sensomoid here, uh, one on the pinky, and one in the heel. So this creates a tripod to stabilize the human body. But my work is completely different than that. My work says once you start to apply fascial tension and uses the underlying fascia to, to drive your locomotive, your, your contact point will be along the second toe on the ball of the foot area. This will be the only contact point you'll be focusing on. There is no one, two, three. So in my system, there's only one. One contact area is the primary contact point along with the toe pads, especially the big toe. And your big toe has to be in a retracted fashion instead of an extended fashion. Because in an extended fashion, you cannot apply force. So for example, if you try to do this, you will sprain your big toe. Whereas if you retract your big toe, which has a joint there, and you push, you can push your whole arm, whole glutes into the ground. So there's a lot of benefit in doing that. And you showed us those images of the bruised uh, big toenail. Yes, that is the, that is approving the pudding. That, that, that is yeah. really the, you are playing detective here. Why do you have the bruising in the toenail? And remember in your prior conversation, you mentioned while you were athlete in high school, you had blister on your toes. Right. Those are the dots for you to connect because your toes are actually gripping. Yes. You're actually you know, applying that natural fascial tension. And you know what else I had? Under the second toe, I had a giant callus. That is your so cup. So big. People used to tease me. And then when I discovered your work, I was like, oh my gosh. You need, you need to slap those people. That, it's, it's, they know, don't know what, they, what, what they're talking about. My father was an excellent athlete. He went to university on a track scholarship. He did the 100-yard dash. And then he played club rugby throughout his life into his 50s. He played club rugby, and he was the fast guy that scored all the points. He always had a black big toe, black um, bruised. Uh, let, me, let me go back to a my black slide. And blue. He always had a black and blue big toe. And just looking at your image today, I'm like, wow. My, well, he was doing something right. Uh, he exhibited skill for, you know, decades. And he hated shoes. Bruised big toe. Yeah. Bruised big toe. It's the science, the science all, it's like stars aligned together for this, for this truth to come up, yeah. for this magnificent underlying metamorphosis to come up. Everyone that is gifted, everyone that is um, competing on the highest level of the million dollar athletes, they share the common signs. And uh, the, the bruised toenail, because when you wear the shoe, you are focusing on your foot, your foot is stiff. You are not relying on your shoe so that your foot actually will collide with your toe, especially your big toe. Because it's in a retracted state, it has a, lo it has a lot of attention. You will collide with your shoe because the shoe is actually ex external factor. Mm -hmm. Majority of the people, when they use their shoe, they're actually letting the shoe do the walk yeah. instead of their foot. So they don't develop this type of science and they think they're normal, but 
they are actually losing fast attention every single day. Yes, and we also see like people wearing clogs. So the shoe, the shoe is rolling them forward on that surface or these big wacky running shoes now. So just to return to where we can begin, we can begin by raising the heel, standing on a towel and pinching that towel. Curl, with, curling um, the toes. Right. Curling the toes. And also in the, for, for beginnings, beginners, you should get a, some, a, a small rebounder with a handle because a lot of people, they have stability issues because lack of glutes, uh, uh, lack of uh, glutes function. So they might feel uncomfortable on a rebounder, but you want to start, start hopping on the rebounder with a stiff ankle. You want to focus on your toes being engaged and then you want to concentrate on your arc being stiff. These are some of the fundamental things that you can do to your body immediately. And I think the rebounder really helps because people that normally don't uh, apply any type of hopping in their activity, they will find it uh, in the beginning might be a little bit challenging, but it will be, it will be a lot of fun after they start to adapt. Also, another thing they will notice is that with the emphasis of a, a stiff ankle, you are actually bouncing higher then let's say you are just using your whole foot hitting on the rebounder itself. Uh, I think this is also a critical, uh, critical information I want to share is that there is two ways that people are hopping. People are hopping. One is that when they hop, every, every time their ankles loose, they're using their foot to hop. They're doing this. So this type of movement or this type of hop will use a lot of muscle, for example, your calf, and your calf will start to fatigue. Whereas in the, in the hyperarthritis conditioning, uh, fascia tensioning way, you try to lock up the ankle so that this joint becomes one. Integrated by fascia, fascia is the wrapping of your ankle and stabilizing it through tension, just like your, just like your uh, for example, your wrist, you can stabilize it by putting tension in your hand. Now your, your wrist is stiff, it cannot be bent. The same function applies to your ankle. It also can be holding, held in stiffness. So when you hop like this, your muscle cannot do the work now. There's no oh. contraction. Your fascia has to do the work. Right, great. So the way to have that stiffness, to begin to practice that is to curl the toes. In the beginning, you have to work on the toes, mm -hmm. and then you have to build the neurological connection, mental connection from your foot to the glutes, and then concentrate on your arc and apply the stiffness to your ankle. This is how you're able to build the connection back. Thank you. And uh, you have a wonderful YouTube channel where you share a lot of that, and then I also know that you also lead coaching and do Skype and Zoom coaching and everything like that. But I learned enough from your YouTube channel to really get going. And then I joined your Facebook group and that was incredibly helpful. You're really generous. And I was back on your Facebook group recently and watched a lot more of your recent videos. And I'm so glad that you joined me here today. 
So I want to be mindful of your time, but, um, and we have some people who might want to ask some questions, but I just want to hear, uh, please share with us something that you may not have covered yet that you feel is uh, essential. Um, I think what need to under uh, what what majority of people need to really understand is that the uh, if you want to live a life uh, without thinking, without uh, critically you know looking looking at what is going on and try to ask questions, you will basically kind of vibrating on a lower consciousness. You will, all, on a lower scale uh, of consciousness, you will always have more suffering. And you will always depend on others, either the doctors or a trainer or a coach or somebody else. But if you start to question these things and really use your brain to think about these very fundamental questions and just like you connect the dots of why there is a bruised big toenail, <laughs> why there is uh, calluses on top of toes, why there is a calluses under my second toe while I was a good athlete and why babies have their toes curled and why babies prior to age three don't have any echo strays. If you start to think this way, and start to be conscious, more conscious, then, late, then you will realize by improving your consciousness, by improving your understanding of your body, you can depend on yourself. I think this is the ultimate goal, is to depend on yourself, not anybody else. You are the master of your own universe. You are the master of yourself. That's beautiful, thank you so much. I had a yoga teacher, he was also an MD in India, and I overheard a conversation he was having. He kind of met people in an open clinic and did a lot of different modalities with them. And he said to someone, the reason to have good health is so that you are not a burden to those that you love. And he Very said, true. you must look after yourself, man. You must look after yourself. You cannot be a burden to those that you love. So as you were just saying, if we become dependent on the doctor and dependent on the drugs or whatever, we are a burden for our own self, but we do become a burden to those that we love. But the joy and the freedom in continually growing and exploring and having this independence of well-being within community, it really is uh, the human spirit and i would say like the eastern way uh it's it embodies the eastern understanding thank you so much chong for coming on today it means so much to me and um we do have some folks here and if you would like to ask a question just turn on your audio thank you just unmute yourself and if i need to unmute you. Um, okay, Yuri, uh, thank you. Uh, you have a question for Chong today? 
Hi, yes, first of all, thank you for sharing so much and, and very, it's very fascinating your comparisons to astrophysics and to the whole way that we think holistically, you know, about the body and, and where our energy comes from, especially in athletics and movement. Um, I, I did a workshop with a very notable yoga teacher. I'm a beginning Ashtanga yoga student, um, uh, uh, David Williams. And he, he really emphasized in his workshop uh, 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 what he called, uh, he was from North Carolina, right? So he had the Southern accent. He said, tiger paw. And we took, a, took us like a half the class to figure out what he was saying. And he was talking about tiger paw. Tiger the paw. paw of a tiger, yes. And he said both in the, in the hands and the feet, you should, be, you should be gripping. And I found it to be very useful uh, uh, guidance because it, it's, I'm, I'm actually quite stiff in the yoga. It's certainly not my uh, top athletic form. You know, it's a very challenging for me, but I really enjoy it. Um, but it did, I, the first thing I noticed doing it is it took an incredible amount of weight off of my joints. Um, and I used a lot less energy. And so my question is, should you, that gripping with the feet, perhaps the gripping with the hand, that stiffness, do you do it in all situations? Or is it for particular shapes, forms, movements? Do you, or do you always grip? I, I started doing it all the time just because I have two torn knees and I like taking the weight off my joints and I like not having to use my muscles as much for as much torque so I don't get another injury. Exactly. I mean, when you, that's a great question. Uh, so when you have a torn, uh, for example, ligament in your knee, when you have, when you have suffered knee injury before, this is already a sign that your body telling you that your fascia fitness level is not high. Meaning your, whatever movement you're doing, when you're trying to absorb the, absorb the force, your body was not able to absorb that force and to channel it to the glutes or transfer it to the glutes. So your joint was the one that suffered the consequence. <laughs> Excuse me. So back to what you asked about the, 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 the tension, the, the gripping. The, 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 the way that your body is supposed to function is that every time you, if you are in a natural environment, your, your foot is bare, your foot will get stimulated. And every time your foot gets stimulated, it will tense. It will not relax. So to answer your question is yes, you're supposed to apply fascial tension 24 seven. And this is where the morphing occurs. And this is also why fascia has this uh, uh, a property called viscoelasticity. And this property causes LeBron James, who is an extremely durable athlete, to be mostly injury-free in his career. Wonderful. Thank you. I Thank don't know you. if I'll be LeBron James, but I will certainly practice more gripping. <laughs> <laughs> Did, uh, Joe, did you have any questions for Chong? Sure. Yes. Um, thank you very much. That was a really great conversation. I appreciate it. Um, and I was wondering, do you actually have a program that people can follow that will kind of take us through some uh, progression here? Is that, is that what I'm hearing? And how do we access that? Yes. So I have a, uh, well, seven years ago, I started, I started this uh, uh, journey. Uh, I wrote a little ebook and I uh, started uh, a YouTube channel and I started to help people and discuss 
uh, feedbacks because I didn't know at the time if this if this subconscious knowledge can be passed down to another person outside myself and it would uh, have the equal benefit. But, uh, you know, through trial and error, this is definitely something can be taught and learned by anybody. And this is how, this is how I started to work with professional athletes. And uh, I have a program uh, which, which I have designed on my website um, I have actually three three tiers of program. One is for just novices, uh, and one is for people who want to train with me, uh, which I call the Semi Pro, which is also the most popular. Uh, you will get a breakdown, a six step breakdown of the hyperarch mechanism, which I really dumb it down to the simplest level that anybody can understand. And then I have uh, at least thirteen videos of fashioning fascia tensioning exercise that I have experimented over the years that I found is most crucial for you to slowly level up in your fascia fitness. So by joining that program, you are able to rebuild this fascial connection from your foot to the glutes. And on top of that, if you still need additional help, I do provide a one-on-one virtual training, which consists of 12 sessions and also a group training as well. It depends on what you like. If you want to train with a group virtually or training with me one-on-one. We wanted to come out and train with you when you were teaching at the Y. Oh, we cool. Thought, what is Chong going to think? <laughs> These aren't basketball players. It, it doesn't have to be basketball. Like I have a lot of students who are, I mean, we're using the basketball court. Yes, I understand. Uh, but uh, I mean, we have a lot of athletes that are, doing martial arts, doing Tai Chi, uh, doing just a daily, you, know, you don't have to be athlete. They just right. want to improve their fascial connection. They don't have to be LeBron James level. They just want to be level three, just want to have uh, weights taken off of, of their joints or, or recover from a, uh, a joint injury. I wanna thank you for how generous you are over social media and everything that you share and um, you were so generous with your time and your knowledge today. Thank you so much, Chong. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Yes, I'm so happy that you said yes. And I really look forward to more people knowing about your work and improving their lives through your dedicated research and application. Thank you. Thank you so much.